Welcome to Slingshot by Arkham Ventures. On this podcast, we curate conversations with product experts about the processes and ideas that make modern day product management tick. Tune in every fortnight to listen to our latest episode. Join our Substack mailing list at slingshot.substack.com to stay informed about the latest release. Without further ado, let's dive in and listen to our guests. Akash Gupta is the co-founder and CTO of Grey Orange, a leading robotics company that builds solutions for warehouse automation. Akash started this robotics journey in the CNC labs of Bitspilani. He participated and won several global robotic competitions and found himself in his friend's house in Delhi as a co-founder of a robotic startup called Grey Orange. Since then, Akash has steadily built the company over the last 10 years to become one of the industry leaders in the robotic space. Akash, it's awesome to have you here on Slingshot. Welcome. Thanks, Dan Sarkar. So Akash, the uh, first question that I was reading an article interview actually that you'd given uh, was about how you moved from a small town to Kanpur, learned computer design, and then you came to BITS and you joined the robotics team. So to kick this off, could you walk us through how it was, uh, you know, how was that journey uh, as, as a very young person? Uh, how did you get fitted into the whole robotics scene a couple of years back? Yeah, sure. No, I think, you know, I think coming from, uh, you know, the whole um, environment of uh, JE and, you know, and, 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 you know, kind of preparing for these competitive exams and then, uh, you know, coming through on some of, um, some of these, I think one thing that, you know, I think as a, as a young kid with a lot of energy, I was frustrated about the whole concept of, you know, writing exams and getting marks and, you know, and I think, uh, you know, that, 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 kind of seemed to be a lot less meaningful as, as as we kind of got into the college. So I think one thing I was very frustrated about that I no more want to write exams and and then, you know, people should give me marks for for, for that. And and I think uh, that didn't seem to be, um, you know, I, I, I felt that I really didn't had knowledge, right? I, you know, I, I could draw a beautiful diagram of a DC motor as an engineer, um, you know, and, and tell you exactly what happens but I, I, I won't, you know, at that point of time, I couldn't even see a DC motor and tell it's a DC motor, uh, you know, and, and things like that. So I think um, the, the the journey in the mind was, you know, how do I understand things, right? How do I know about things with a lot of curiosity? I've done a fair amount of coding in, in my school and with a lot of competitions and all, but I'm still very attracted to physical things, how physical things, um, you know, work. And I think... Um, you know, and and it it was always very inquisitiveness about if if I see a phone, I should really understand how it is working. I I should know exactly what's happening on the hardware side, what's happening on the firmware side, what's happening on the software side. And of course, you won't even know what firmware is at that point of time. But you know, you would I would want to know what exactly is happening in a device. And I think, uh, and and when I um, kind of met um, some of these folks, and and that's where I met met Samaya as well. Uh, you know, back in 2008, I think uh, we saw, you know, folks who were actually kind of working with, um, you know, all, all different parts of engineering. And I think that really attracted me to kind of, um, uh, you know, start getting into it. And and I think from from there, uh, there was pretty much no looking back. I think I, I entered um, the robotics lab of Mitz Pilani. I think a month later, I kind of got into Pilani and uh, in, into the campus. And I think 
I spend my uh, two to and a half years pretty much living in the lab and um, you know spending uh, you know all the time in in, in the lab. Yeah. So uh, as someone who started out, you know, uh, straight at college, uh, somebody was telling me that you were like you yourself said just now and also before that attendance is not mandatory in Pilani and you made full use of it, spent two years at the lab. But uh, it was a surprise to actually learn and I'm hearing more and more people are doing it now. Second, third year is when you really started working, uh, you know, on something which was other than writing tests and exams. Um, what What's your take on, you know, preparedness of hand-holding student entrepreneurs now compared to what you'd seen before? Do you think we are able to, at a college level, at a mentor level, handhold and guide the next uh, Zuckerberg in India? Yeah, I think I would say the ecosystem definitely is much better. Uh, you know, at least uh, at second year, third year level, when you talk about these things, people don't show you off. You know, I think that, you know, at our at our stage in 2009, 2010, you know, I think when if if we would talk about building a world-class, uh, you know, industrial hardware enterprise software company. I think, uh, you know, people would normally, you know, you know, not, not even entertain you. And so I think at least that has changed. I think I've, at least I have spent, you know, uh, time with a couple of students in third year level in Bitspilani, helping them, uh, you know, figure out and, um, you know, helping them, uh, how, how do we move forward? So I think uh, it has become a lot more believable, right? And, and hence, uh, you know, I think there is a there's a fair uh, ecosystem available to kind of talk about it, understand what does it take. Um, you know, and I I won't say it's still a very empowering ecosystem, but still enabling. You know, I think we have reached the point where it's still enabling, right? People are encouraging you. People are you giving you you know a good understanding. I I still feel that you know we we don't have that those kind of labs that you have in. Um, you know, MITs and things like that, where um, you know, within within campus, you can really launch launch through. But um, but I think the ecosystem is a lot more enabling and and moving towards uh, you know empowering as we as we go in. Yes. So speaking of like, uh, so you started straight out of college, right? What is it? I always wonder what's the story behind the name Grey Orange? Can you just like walk us through that? Yeah. So I think again, you know, when you are uh, starting as young as you know third year, um, you know you you don't really know what's the importance of the name, right? So I think uh, you know I remember uh, we got a we were doing this, uh, and again I think Grey Orange also have evolved its kind of story from you know we started doing workshops and then kind of converted into a, 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 a more of a custom software product and, and software and hardware product company to a you know to a products for certain um, you know. Uh, you know, warehousing and, and logistics, but um, we got this call from, you know, IT Bombay where they were, you know, we were doing our first workshop, um, you know, and um, they asked, you know, what's the, you know, what's what 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 the, what's the name at which they want to get registered? And I think both me and Samay had like 30 minutes to think about something and and do that. And you know, I think so we were we were looking at um, we 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 were thinking about this in two ways. One is that. You know, we want experience, but um, we also want a lot of fun attached to it, right? I think we were a firm believer of that. You know, I think if you're not having fun while doing your profession, it's not something that, um, you know, you should be doing. So, you know, gray and orange was a combination of gray being gray matter, experience, um, you know, and, and things like that. 
and orange was a representation of um, you know creativity fun so you know we wanted to build an organization and we still truly believe in we want to build an organization where you know people are really having fun while um, you know while uh, you know building products and solving world class problems but um, it was very important for us to have that creativity innovation young blood you know and and um, i would say fun while uh, while doing stuff so i think gray and gray orange was a combination of those two i would say thoughts we we had yeah usually when we talk to a student entrepreneur uh, the common thread is essentially they are always fascinated either by some consumer centric use case or very like sci-fi like high tech use case and all nobody really start out as a enterprise warehouse automation company so i'm sure you must have like some ambition around building next uh, boston robotics or Uh, something like Boston Dynamics or something, or how does the vision evolve, and what was the initial idea? Yeah, so I think, you know, I think uh, in the mid of it, while you know, while we were doing products for other companies, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we we realized that we are playing with too many things, right? Uh, we we were doing medical robotics, we were doing, uh, you know, image processing stuff, we were doing. Uh, sensor stabilization system so we are doing a lot of stuff but you know what what got both to me and and some was that uh you know that um, by doing this we won't make or break right we were we, we were the business was being run in a way that we were getting enough money but it's not that it's it was exploding so we kind of came back and decided we'd want to do something Mm-hmm. right where we are really i would say disrupting a industry and solving a global problem worth solving mm-hmm. right either we really you know make make that as a big i would say leap or we kind of cut it down and and um, you know go and do jobs right so you know that's pretty much how you're thinking when you're you know 21 right you're you're thinking either you build a, you know and that point of time the ambition was you know billion dollar company today it doesn't seems to be right but um, you know i think you build, build a billion dollar company or you shut down i think so that was you know we wanted to make sure that we are solving a big enough problem and then we explored some industries actually we explored two three industries one was uh, warehousing and logistics another was um, oil and ta- oil tanks maintenance that's, that's still i believe is a big problem that hasn't been solved massively um and then we were looking at um, even the railway maintenance or you know track maintenance as uh, another industry um and and i think when we looked at warehousing and logistics industry and we were spending more and more time at that point of time two months looked like a long time right you have nothing else to do but to kind of this you know today two months look like look like a very small time to decide the strategy for the company but at that time two months looked like a huge amount of time so uh so we 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 were looking at certain patterns and we figured out that you know the consumer space was changing so rapidly and so as the manufacturing space changing very very rapidly but you know when we kind of looked at supply chain and i think we we had some coincidences of uh, flipkart reaching to us seeing if we can you know do some robotics enabled automation in in their fulfillment centers and things like that um you know just as custom projects because we were doing custom projects earlier and we when we saw the industry we saw the industry hugely hugely lagged innovation and uh, you know uh, i i would say intelligent way or a engineering first way of solving 
you know, supply chain can really disrupt things, right? Because supply chain, people used to solve supply chain and even today used to use our use of solving supply chain through operations, right? Nobody has, you know, tried solving supply chain purely through engineering, right? And, and I'm not talking about just the planning softwares, but warehouse fulfillment, execution softwares and things like that. And I think that got us convinced that it's a large enough industry uh, I think we we were lucky enough to predict that four or five years later, this industry is really, really going to explode because we saw consumer behavior changing very, very, um, you know, rapidly. And with industry 4.0 and all manufacturing behavior was changing, but we saw that supply chain will need to change. And I think um, we, we um, you know, luckily were able to predict that very well that, um, you know, at some point of time, supply chain will need disruption and it has to be completely kind of driven in a very, very different frame from what it was uh, driven at that point of time. So I think that intrigued us. And um, and I think we, we thought that, you know, we could, you know, we could really kind of make a world-class um, product and solution to solve that problem statement. You never had like any ideas about building something like a Roomba or some kind of a drone or some more consumer-centric. Yeah, so, so see again, I think we have played with robotics you know, three years before we started thinking about, uh, you know, startup, right? I think we have played enough with Roombas. We have opened enough Roombas, modified enough Roombas, mm-hmm. you know, played with humanoid robotics enough. So I think, um, you know, I, I think our, our energy for playing with robots kind mm-hmm. of, you know, was, we were, we were satisfied with that. Now, when, when we were at third year, I think my energy was most towards how can I make a meaningful impact with robotics and the technology, I think we played enough, you know, uh, you know, in in our first three years to really kind of have that kind of thoughts. I think we were more about, you know, I understand it, um, you know, we want to really do something. What what can make a world class impact? I think that that's where the thought had evolved till I reached my third year. Yeah. We have a fairly decent understanding of the product process and the kind of release cycles in a consumer and software product and all, but. We don't know much about the release cycle and the whole product addition process in a hardware and more specifically robotics thing. So how does it work? Like, do you have really like uh, big release cycle dependencies on like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it, it has taken us a while to figure that out, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I think when we kind of started thinking about building industrial hardware, right? Mm-hmm. The, 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 the references we had and the kind of people you got, right, who had uh, experience were all majorly automobile folks, right? Uh, you know, where, where you build, um, you know, more reliable, uh, you know, hardware, right? And now automobile cycles are huge cycles, right? They, you know, they are like seven, eight year cycles. So you build a car, the planning starts on, you know, year zero and, you know, the first piece will come out in year three, four, and then you'll produce like, millions of unit of it and then you'll have a like an end of life and things like that so i think um and and we knew that the space we were entering cannot have a product life cycle of like eight years you got to release something like in 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 two years and make sure you kind of then have the capability of maintaining and supporting it so i think we innovated a lot towards how do we kind of do um you know we we, we call it pdlc it's called you know product development life cycle so we we evolved in terms of how do we cut down that seven year cycle into a two year cycle? How do we make sure that we can get out versions much more uh, uh, quickly? We saw where we can take risk, where we cannot take risk and kind of kind of crunch down a good 
six, seven year life cycle into a you know two year life cycle, and then of course you got to support and um, you got to make sure your spare part strategy and things like that, and then declare you know. So I can I can go through the um, you know product level development life cycle if you guys want, but I think we tried and seeing how how we crunch that seven years into a two year um, you know hardware product development um, you know life cycle in in our um, in our journey. Yeah. So you plan on a two-year timeline scale. Today. Yeah. So how we how we today do is, in fact, now we have even gone to like twelve to eighteen months. But our initial life cycles were two years. So you know where where we would, you know, normally um, you know go to go to go through some proof of concepts and then um, you know come up with a design and then um, you know you would you would design it, get you know you know make sure that it is well reviewed and and you have, you have kind of done your calculations correctly and then you start prototyping. So so you you go through your prototyping, uh, you know any any anywhere in the range of three to six months would be a prototyping cycle. So you would do your prototypes and then you kind of uh, do your uh, you know once once you have kind of tested your prototypes and things like that, you do alpha version of it. You get like five, seven bots out, um, you know, of alpha version, test it again, you know, look at for the specs, look at for the validation, and then kind of, um, you know, and then kind of spin out a beta version where you, in beta version, you are figuring out how you, how you are the DFM, DFX part, the design for manufacturing, device, device, design for support part. And, and so while you are going through the beta, um, you know, beta version of it, you're also making sure that you're setting up your, Kind of assembly line. You are working with um, your all your manufacturers to define their quality plans, to define um, you know their manufacturing processes, and you know also kind of making sure that during beta you are making sure all your um, you know test setups are there, jigs, fixtures, all of all of it is there. So so yeah, you you basically between alpha to beta, you make sure that it is manufacturable, supportable. What is your spare part strategy? What is your distribution strategy? And 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 things like that. So that that happens in the beta cycle, and then you kind of start doing your uh, you know production. We also kind of pr pretty much every quarter we did improve even our production cycle. So we did you know what we we call it as um, ECMs, electronic change numbers. So we did uh, you know kind of then after once you have something in production which you're producing, let's say whatever 500 pieces are. A month or thousand pieces a month, um, you know, depending upon um, you know what what you're producing. Uh, you also we uh, at least uh, did a quarterly cycle of what feedback are we getting from from the field? How do we kind of apply you know changes to make sure that you are um, you know doing that in the parallel while you are doing beta? There is also a certification process that you are going. You know, some of the certification is for own reliability. So in terms of um, you know, in, in, in terms of safety certifications like CE or, or UL in terms of uh, uh, other, um, you know, reliability part of it in terms of uh, stress testing, your, uh, you know, uh, your vibration testing, your uh, temperature, hot and cold testing. So all those are other set of, um, you know, testing that you are doing while you are doing your, uh, you know, beta cycles. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's one part of it. And then um, when you go into your, uh, you know, I think we lately, you know, kind of uh, realized that, okay, you know, how do we make sure that we declare the end of life of a version very, very carefully, because you want to make sure that you give your customers enough time to kind of know that it's getting end of life. And, um, you know, then, then, you know, you got to kind of be careful about declaring end of support for a version. And of course, you would always follow up with the next version for, for your market and, and, and customers. So I think we have gone through 
at least two to three cycles now of you know taking a version out and then um, you know uh, getting it to the market, taking the feedback, improving it, making it more robust, and then you know coming out with the next version. I think very recently, um, you know, the the last version or you know the version that we are doing now, um, you know, we have been able to um, I would say cut cut down the two year cycle into a more fourteen month cycle. So we are um, you know now releasing something in. Uh, in April, that started last April. So April will be, you know, uh, will be its, um, you know, beta release where we'll be kind of uh, producing uh, 40 units of it and then kind of testing it at a beta customer. Um, I think um, one thing that you really learn with all of this while you are crunching the cycle is that, you know, of course it's it's good to crunch the cycle, but more you crunch the cycle, earlier you will have to find a beta customer. If you, you know, if you, because you need a very, very quick real feedback, you know, running things in lab versus running in real environment are completely different things, right? And I think that's 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 all been learning after we have done two, two three revisions. But for example, in this, normally we used to put something to a beta customer in month 18, month 19, right? And, and this time we are putting something in the, in the beta customer in month 14. Right, because we want um, and and that too at a much scale. Right, if you look at our last versions, we used to send five bots, seven bots to the customer. Right, and this time we are you know putting up fifty bots to the customer. Right, even at the beta level. So, so I think um, you know the what, what we have kind of figured out is that if you are crunching the cycle, right, the, the whole development cycle, you got to hit to a customer much much earlier because you are not giving enough time for you to bake the product and things like that. And, and there's no better place to accelerate the failures or you know understand what's working, what's not working than a, a, a customer environment, right? And and we are we are we are we are now used to more of taking something new and you know putting it to in a in, into a customer's place, which is like utilizing it like anything, right? Which is like literally have 90, 95% utilization of the of the hardware. So I think that's that's how kind of we have looked at hardware development um, in a cycle. I think another part that we we think is going to be also very important is uh, you know uh, you know the you know the part post alpha release until the support uh, you know kicks in. I think that's a very very critical part which you know I think uh, a lot of people miss and we kind of missed in our first cycle and kind of learned a lot, lot from from it. I think is is. How do we make sure that the right handovers takes place to you know you your support teams get well trained your manufacturing teams get trained your supply chain team understand the complexities of it so I think uh, you know after you have got something working right is still a forty percent work right you have got something working is a forty percent work making sure that when you replicate that one into you know thousand all gonna work at the same quality at the same um, you know reliability is the rest 40% work and last 20% is making sure your spare part strategy and your you know your your um, you know training set site and your uh, you know after you know support people and all are are well aware i think that's that's how i would i would look at this yeah and uh, so if i understand it right like that was quite an elaborate answer but uh, 14 months of gestation and two years of shelf life, right? No, shelf life, 
what, what do you mean by shelf life here? In the sense, like by the time it get obsolete and end of life support kicks in and all oh, that. Yeah. Is. So see again, we stop producing a version after two years because you mm-hmm. come up with the next version. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean for the customer the life is ten years. Ten years. So you're still okay. supporting it for next ten years, right? Mm-hmm. But you stop selling. You know, okay. you stop selling it anymore. So if let's say somebody wants a Ranger version 1.0 or 1.5, he won't get it today, right? You can only get 2.1 or you know 3.0, right? And, so, so and since have, you have an AMC kind of a arrangement with yes, the guys, so yes, the, it yes. will be generating revenue for you for next 10 years. That's yes, a good return, yes. like for 14 months of gestation, 10 years of revenue, right? Yes, yes. See again, 10 years of AMC revenue, but not yeah. necessarily, and that would be like a 12%, 15% of it. So. Mm-hmm. so and there's of course of, of course support costs and things like that but yeah i think at the end of the day it's you know your uh, overall it, it will be a pretty fairly high gross margin business yeah and uh, we as somebody who come from purely software background what are the underlying technological leverage in software we have like a new framework or x86 architecture or gui framework and what are the underlying uh, technological inflection point which helps in robotics like i know lidar is one like i think everybody knows that but other than that yeah so again i think getting your you know getting your power circuitry right getting your battery management right in robotics some of these are very important getting your um, safety right is again very 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 important uh, mm-hmm. you know pieces of it so from the technology point of view you know getting your um, you know safety architecture getting your uh, uh, I would say navigation architecture, right? Some these are some of the aspects that are very important, and you know, again, if you get them wrong, then it's 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 gonna be very very hard to kind of um, uh, recover. So, is gray orange into the business of building the underlying component itself, or you're just kind of putting them together in a? Uh, no, I think we 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 have built pretty much lot of these things from scratch battery management systems our whole power circuitry mm. you know, the, the complete navigation system the mm. you know the, the chassis part of it the lift mechanism part of it i think all all of these are kind of gone through multiple revisions in house uh, in house for us yeah so you never thought of launching a, releasing a reference architecture and license it to other manufacturers and all yeah, i think see we don't want never wanted to go into that business i think mm-hmm. for we, you know, I think if you look at Gray Orange, we are not a robotics company solving supply chain problem, right? We, you know, turned into a supply chain company powered by robotics, right? We, we turned into a supply chain software solution company, very, very, you know, I would say strongly powered by robotics. So we... Mm-hmm. Now, if we were a robotics company who's doing supply chain and want to kind of go into adjacencies, mm. then you would, um, you know, take that sample architecture and say, you know, put, so we, today we are standardizing things, but we are standardizing very, very different things. We are today standardizing things like how would, um, you know, autonomous mobile robot talk to a fulfillment operating system, mm. right? You know, so how, you know, so we are standardizing things from the other way around, we are standardizing things for supply chain as an ecosystem and not for robotics or AMRs as an ecosystem. AMRs is just one device in our large envelope, right? But um, you know, so so that's 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 how we have been looking at it. 
as somebody who was like a real young entrepreneur and starting in this nascent industry and having a totally different take on how things should be done like how do you overcome the hiring barrier in the sense like how do you evaluate somebody who is like 15 years of industry experience in automobile and not to get overwhelmed by or like star struck by the experience and all yeah yeah so so i think you know we have been always looking at and i you know personally was very very deep into into interviews uh, even today but you know four years back i was doing good three to four interviews every uh you know week or so um and and i think um, you know we were looking at you know people who could think differently and also were not very ticky towards you know doing something in a certain way right mm-hmm. and and um and we were very very conscious that we were not hiring people from supply chain industry right we hired our first person who who had lot of supply chain experience like 4 5 years of after our journey right and we were very very conscious that we were hiring people especially in our product group and in technology group right who were not from supply chain industry because we knew what you know worlds of manhattan jda and you know retrary and these have built and we believed that there is a very different way of doing this and solving that problem and we didn't want influence want wanted to get influenced by them so i think we were hiring people with very different experiences right but who believed in the in the vision of that supply chain needs to evolve into a very very different um, you know way than than what it is today interesting so how once you hire these guys who are somewhat more experienced and all a common um, refrain or common experience shared by entrepreneur is essentially they face some kind of a imposter syndrome when you manage people who are more experienced than you and it's very hard to judge whether the limitation you are getting is a individual's limitation or the problem is fundamentally unsolvable so how do you kind of find your way around it yeah see again i think as a entrepreneur it's a it's it's equally a hard job for you to keep growing up right you know you mm-hmm. you got to be you know you got to be continuously if, if you yourself are not growing up every 3 months right then then you yourself are going to become a bottleneck so i think it's a it's a equally big challenge for a entrepreneur to make sure that you know he is evolving and and the good thing is that you know it's a it's a continuous journey so you are evolving with with it and and i think um i think i never felt that way so i'm you know not 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 very sure if i can answer this in a more apt way but i think um, you know we just wanted to make sure that we are we are working with people who believe in that vision and um, and um, we were we were ensuring that we were thought leaders in the industry and we could we could uh, you know guide our folks to you know to you know to 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 that thought leadership i think we we still always have and even today our leadership we had brilliant ideas of how to solve problems in a very very different way and i think uh, so we built a group of people uh, you know who believed that this can be solved in a different way and everybody who came irrespective of experience mm-hmm. kind of um, you know started seeing the same vision and that's that's the and again i think as a as a as a leader you always want to make sure that you you are respectful of um, you know what 
what the experiences are and where whose strength is right and and if um, if you yourself are not hiring people who have far more you know uh, i would say experience and expertise in areas than than you then you're really not doing a good job of building a good company because you know i can be a great generalist but but i think we we you need to get people who have good experience you got to kind of select if you want the same domain or not the same domain but you still have to get people who have same experience work hand in hand with them but you still have to make sure you are able to inspire them you are able to make sure that they see the same vision you are seeing so i think um, you know i think it has to be a lot more inspirational leadership than a fear driven or manager driven leadership um, you know in in most of these aspects at the end of the day if you are unable to inspire your leaders you know irrespective of the experience um, i think um, you know you you as an entrepreneur won't won't be doing your job um, job well so i think uh, experience never came into the way but um, you know ensuring that you you are, are inspiring your leadership and your leadership methodology is uh, through inspiration and not through fear and not through you know anything like that i think that's the most important piece interesting and what is the next big breakthrough you are essentially what's the plan for gray orange for next 5 year and what is the underlying lever you are breakthrough you are looking for which will take robotics to the next like Sure, sure. So I think um, you know, Grayarange has evolved from like a automation company to a lot more fulfill fulfillment platform company. So I was saying that um, I would say Grayarange has evolved a lot more from a you know automation company where we used to kind of give automation solutions to a lot more fulfillment platform company. And as you look at three to five years. we are looking at um, you know gray matter as a kind of a de facto fulfillment operating system which is powered by you know robotic solution from gray orange but also kind of well integrated with you know other robotics uh, you know solutions in the ecosystem so how we are looking at this is that you know today when somebody opens a fulfillment center um, he needs to you know find five six different uh, types of um, you know software execution systems automations try and bring them all together and if they are successful in trying and bringing it solution uh, you know together kind of then um, you know i would say getting something live in you know 18 24 months time frame we are looking at how do we evolve gray matter you know into a into a operating system where people can um, you know go live within their warehouses in 3 months 4 months we, we in fact we have now warehouses which have you know large huge warehouses like half a million square feet warehouses that we have taken from you know doing zero throughput to like 100000 units a day in like 3 months time period so i think we are, we are looking at kind of providing a fulfillment platform to you know our, our customers which can become a de facto kind of a shop for for them so that they can they can kind of future proof their supply chain you know while they get onboarded on the platform because here at gray orange we are ensuring that whatever you know technologies that is reliable enough for them to uh, i would say integrate within within their fulfillment centers we are making sure that either we are making them or you know making sure one of our technology partners which is well integrated with uh, with us is uh, onboarded on our uh, on our platform so that's that's the direction kind of we are um, uh, there i think we are we are almost a uh, year year and a half in a five year journey towards kind of making gray matter as the de facto fulfillment operating system and one last question before i pass over to my colleague here 
Uh, we talk, we hear a lot about the last mile delivery and a lot of innovations have been been in pipeline for a while, like vertical takeoff landing robots, uh, drones and like uh, delivery robots and all. What is stopping them and what kind of a timeline you see when it, we can see it in, let's say, US or in India? Yeah, I think last mile delivery is a, is a fairly complex problem. I, and not, I, I won't say technologically, right? I, I, I don't think it's a complex technology problem. I think... If you're, you know, you know, manipulation is a very hard technology problem in in the fulfillment center space, even in the last mile delivery space. But um, I think other part of it is not a very, uh, you know, technology problem. But there are multiple constraints around uh, around these activities, right? You know, firstly, uh, the the cost of doing thing these things is still very very high, right? Uh, you know, and and uh, you know, and and I think um, the whole ecosystem need to kind of evolve a lot more to right automate um, these things. So I think it's, it's again, it's going to be a journey, right? We are already seeing now automated delivery trucks, right? That's going to yeah. remove some part of the last mile problem statement, right? The, yeah. you know, uh, there, there still be a part of, um, I would say, you know, uh, the last, last mile where you got to go and pick your packet or, or, you know, somebody needs to drop that packet at your, uh, you know, door front and things like that. So I think, you know, it includes, one is traveling and movement, but it also includes a lot of manipulation of items, right? Now there's a big truck and you got to find a packet which is, you know, three layer deep somewhere, right? So so there's a lot of manipulation that still needs to be done, right? And that manipulation part is a complex piece, right? You know, um, movement part has been solved, but manipulating objects, right? Objects of any size, right? At any location is still a fairly complex problem. So I think, um, you know, uh, it's still, it's still, and and if you're gonna go to the point where you're gonna deliver, like few items, three four items per drone, because again, when you look at drone technology, the weight is to battery ratio is still still not very good, right? It's it's okay, but you still can only carry two or three package in your in your trip, right? So, um, so till uh, I would say we solve manipulation problem, I think um, you know. It's still gonna be a semi-autonomous, um, you know, uh, I, I would say delivery uh, rather than autonomous uh, delivery. But I think manipulation problem and uh, in the cases of drones, batteries to, you know, the 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 life problem or 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 the you know trip problem is is another problem that's limiting uh, us from um, from getting there. Sure. Sure. Uh, Akash, you mentioned, I think, multiple moving parts throughout the entire PDLC. Uh, was curious to understand how is the gray-orange organization structured? Is it around those uh, tech components of server, power, power circuitry, or is it like more around problem statement-centric, like manipulation may be a problem statement? Yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, our organization structure has also evolved a lot. Um, of course, we started with more traditional structure of having functions and things like that. So we had like mechanical electronics, embedded software. But I think in in after two years of our kind of uh, journey, we started making full stack teams, right? So today we have uh, you know pretty much whether it is hardware, software, or hardware plus software, we have full stack teams. So you know there'll be team handling the chassis part of it. There'll be team handling the navigation part of it, which include mechanical electronics, firmware middleware, um, you know, and, and things like that. So we we pretty much have full stack teams, both in software or hardware. So in, in software also, there'll be a team that would be handling picking as a process. Now, irrespective of what technologies does it involve, you know, it might involve 
you know, different type of software technologies and in, in hardware also, we are, we are pretty much structured in a very similar way. So it, it is all about having full stack teams, having end-to-end -end ownership of, uh, of their modules, and then a systems team that's kind of helping bringing all of that, uh, those modules together. And in, in some ways, I think you at Gray Orange uh, sort of invented the wheel in the sense that you took some fundamental decisions of placing the intelligence in the server, not in the individual units. So how did you sort of go about taking those decisions? Was it an iterative process? Was it something that is very apparent to you at first or how did you go about it? Yeah, so I think, see, most of these decisions need to be taken from the view of what's a what's a slightly long-term goal, right? Uh, you know, and, and as a startup, it's it's a very thin line you're working on, right? You, got, you don't have to take a decision that's going to need so much resources that you will not be able to get to a meaningful like milestone, right? So you got to still take a decision that will, um, you know, uh, that will make your technology or your development viable to get to a MVP, right? But still, you know, and, and so we, we used to take pretty much decisions like um, from, from this perspective, we used to think that what's a good long-term decision, right? And, and what we believe is going to be more successful. And then we always used to go and do a, a check on that uh, isn't going to, if it's going to take way too long to get to MVP because of that decision, then we would flip that decision and say, okay, we're going to park that, you know, uh, architecture and see how we evolve this after we reach our first milestone. But it's always good to first evaluate what's the best long-term decision, then run it through the check of that, you know, uh, is it gonna really make our MVP very heavy, very complex or very time-taking and then take that decision. So I think that that's a methodology we have been kind of using to take uh, more, more of these, uh, these decisions. And so how do you sort of validate the impact of these decisions? For example, in the software sense, it's very easy to sort of uh, run it on staging and then deploy it to production. But even before sort of deploying a robot to a alpha or a beta version, you'll have to test it somewhere. How does that process look like for gray orange? And how do you make it like waterproof? Yeah, yeah, I think, see again, um you know, without any sugar coating, hardware is hard, right? So it's, 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 it is inherently hard. And, you know, even today when, you know, automobile industry goes through so much of testing, right? You still have recalls, right? You know, you know, you, you'll see large companies recalling like thousands of vehicles, right? Or kind of saying that you got to bring these vehicles back to, you know, our service centers and need you do changes. So, it is hard and, and you just need to make sure that you are mitigating enough risk, right? So, and coming more to tactical part of it, we do have our own uh, testing labs and we kind of run robots for millions of, uh, you know, uh, kilometers before we release it to the field. But I think one part that we focus, we have focused a lot more in last two, three years is that you can, you can still do a lot more unit testing in hardware, which we didn't used to do in the early days. Excuse me. Like in software, you can do a large part of uh, unit testing, uh, you know, at the very beginning. It is possible in hardware. It's just that you got to have a lot more focus in parallel to development, right? So, you know, normally in hardware, what comes to mind um, is that we'll make it, then we'll run the whole hardware, right? Because that's that's how you think about it, right? But I think we, last three years, we started applying pretty much our 
scrum qa you know thought process in the hardware that is our how about is the navigation module good enough i don't want to test my navigation module first time when the whole bot is running because it's going to become a bottleneck and, and we are design when you are designing complex robotic systems right when you going to assemble all your seven modules together right finding problems is going to become very complex because you have seven variables to play with right so we started kind of implementing more kind of scrum qa kind of capabilities within hardware groups where we started saying asking our for example let's say chassis team how are you ensuring that your module is going to you know be you know your module is going to make sure and, and and we literally started calling it contracts right like in you know in, in microservices you have api contracts we started writing that what is the chassis contract to navigation and we started kind of thinking about okay in in hardware there are going to be different types of apis there are going to be electronic apis right there are going to be mechanical apis and there are going to be firmware like apis right and then there is a api to physical world right so you you know so for example friction friction is a api to the surface right mechanical apis what are the joints is it going to be a you know t joint or you know what kind of joints are there so we started literally defining and it was very interesting i was talking about this to someone our first uh, design document with hardware apis and you know i was looking at this and and you know of course it has evolved a lot more but we started defining hardware apis and and i think and and then we started kind of putting tests together that okay now once we have defined hardware apis right we then thought we can test hardware apis we can test you can we can make a completely independent setup where bot is not moving but you can still test that is your wheel applying a certain friction to the surface or not independent of you know if the bot will run or not right so i think we started then kind of finding methods of testing these hardware apis in 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 our ecosystem and i think today those kind of things have really helped us in you know contracting our cycles because you know you know earlier the integration cycle used to be like a 6 7 month painful process because you got seven complex pieces of mechatronics right and you got all of them together and now you're trying to figure out if the whole bot is working or not right and that used to be a painful process so i think you know we we literally kind of uh, approach that from scrum qa perspective and and i think we have come a long way on on that yeah any possibility of you open sourcing that hardware api design and yeah we can we can in fact we have been very um, uh, i would say transparent about this i've been kind of uh, sharing all those with lot of hardware uh, you know companies in india uh, you know i'm sharing some of these because uh, again some of the design documents um, you know of 1.5 and all are pretty much relevant for us uh, you know given the technology has moved on so um, quickly uh, so we we did share, mostly share our prds and trds and all of these things with you know people who we get in touch with you know i'm i'm happy to kind of um, share templates with you guys as well if you guys need you know how do we define hardware apis and some of those interesting thoughts i'm happy to share um, share that as well Yeah. That will be useful. That would be very interesting to look at. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. So, Akash, one follow-up question on that. This is sort of a software framework being applied to a hardware product lifecycle, and I think at Gray Orange you were able to look at both of these metallurgies in sort of comparison with each other and together with each other. Is there something that sort of hardware uh, can bring better to software and make it very different and uh, something that we can apply there? So. Uh... i think 
I would say hardware just gets you a lot more cautioned about, right? Even, you know, and, and, and again, you have one mind. So when you're being so cautioned, the cost of making a hardware mistake is huge. Okay, we, we like when you have like a 10,000 bot fleet running, right? Um, you know, if you made a hardware mistake, the cost is huge, right? And, and I think what hardware teaches you is how can you, you know, uh, you know, make sure that some of your designs are very, very strong and some, you know, and how do you kind of think about it in a more um, structured way, right? And, and again, it all, it, it all has to be balanced, right? Um, you know, with, with the new age, you got to be, you know, you, you got to be very agile and, and, and customer focused and things like that. But I think given that we, you know, you know, we look at hardware, we work closely with hardware development lifecycle and software development lifecycle, right? The, the thought of having very strong design definitely leaks to your software development lifecycle. And that gets you to make sure that some of your, you know, technologies that you're using, frameworks that you're using are very robust and, and things like that. So I think the, the thought process of building this things robust kind of leaks into your software mindset as well, which might be good or might not be good sometimes, but um, you know, because it kind of starts fighting with the agility and things like that. But I think that the thought process definitely kind of leaks into your software development lifecycle. And so from what I understand, uh customer education and sort of uh, ensuring the that the warehouse is uh, sort of integrated into your solution after the beta phase and ensuring support for it is a very large part of what Career Orange offers. So how do you sort of look at customer education? How do you solve for it? How do you ensure that all of those warehouse operators, managers actually understand and are able to use the technology fairly well? Yeah, yeah, and I, I think this has been a journey for us uh, like, like every other thing. I think uh, uh, with, with our solutions, we are um, kind of uh, uh, implementing so much change in the warehouse that we literally kind of came with a whole new module which we called as now gray matter command center which was all about how do we you know bring the power back in the hands of warehouse managers because you know when you put a a, a huge kind of robotic system there warehouse managers start feeling or kind of feeling very handicapped right and and we kind of in last three, three and a half years, we build a completely different module or a product that makes sure that that gives them enough visibility, that gives them enough control, and that gives them enough, you know, uh, power to change decisions or modify decisions when need be, and and things like that. So I think it's at the end of the day, you know, it has to be a very very strong change management process that you got to enforce your customers are um, you know implementing you know and 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 then you kind of keep on enabling that with software with uis with analytics uh, with with a lot of uh, feedback coming from them and uh, you know with a lot of understanding coming from them how do we make it easy so i think there is there is no shortcut to that i think uh, i think the only way where where we have found very very effective is how do we keep improving it and keep taking feedback pretty much every two weeks, right? Keep talking to the warehouse manager, keep talking to the operator, keep talking about what is he finding difficult. So I, I don't see a shortcut to this. I think it's more, more about just taking continuous feedback very, very seriously. Things that, things that you might feel are so obvious can be completely unobvious to person who's using your product, right? So just making sure that you're really listening very, very carefully to your user, right? Not the leadership who finally signed on the 
check right you know to the real user at least for enterprise cases of course b2c it's different but b2b majorly somebody is else signing on the check and somebody else is using it so how do you carefully listen to the user you know in a in a very very religious way i think is the is the only way you can make your product very friendly and very usable because that's for sure that when you're going to do it first time it ain't going to be right and you got to be very carefully kind of listening to your real users yeah listening to customer is something of a religion in consumer side of internet also but one problem which kind of we have to tread very carefully in that is essentially at what level you say and now i'll get into the building phase like specification freeze you know for this release this is the time i will listen to now this is specification freeze now it's a code freeze and now i'm getting into testing and all so somebody who work on a 14 months time scale or gestation period how do you draw that line that okay you know this much is enough yeah so uh, so again i think you got to be very uh, i would say agile in these things and we have been very agile into into some of these uh, these things right uh, you know it, 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 there have been times where we had to release something while we knew that there was something that we should have changed and that's okay you 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 know manufacture your first 300 pieces and then from 300 first piece you do that change right and 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 we have been even gone back and you know did that change in all the 300 pieces on field right and and of course in in a hardware it's much harder than just kind of in software because it's a it's a click of a button right or or worst case a script somebody will write so that nobody has to press the buttons but uh, but in hardware we have gone back but at the end of the day if you were to innovate that fast i think you got to be you you got to take that cost you got to take that you know into your consideration you will you will land into situations um, you know and you got to make sure that your processes your uh, you know cost structures are all are you know built in a way that you will be able to absorb that and uh, akash as per your technology roadmap does it very largely lie on in house innovations or something that's happening around the world uh, that is also something that you sort of integrate into it for example lidar is the most common and most known among those yeah 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 and i think uh, see again technology in terms of technology roadmaps i think we have been become, we have become a lot more i would say vigilant towards what's happening in the world i think for first couple of years you are just way too much deep in your product that it doesn't give you enough time to kind of uh, you know take your head off it but i think lately in last 3 4 years we have been lot more vigilant about what kind of technology partnerships we want what's what's happening in the world it's it's very important that uh, you know you use the ecosystem well because at the end of the day you want to give the best thing to the customer the customer is not looking for you know a product that is completely built by you a customer is looking for for a product that's best right that that kind of solves his problem in the best uh, way so so i think um, you know it's it's important to have the right technology partnerships uh, it's important to make sure that you are leveraging some of these technologies uh, you know technology partners to you know use some of the technology that is already mature and things like that so i think we have gone into a lot more balanced uh, view on having these technology partnerships we have joint roadmaps with technology partners right we share our challenges with technology partners and um, you know work with some of these problems uh, together with them and uh, you know whether they are cost uh, down initiatives of getting the bot cost down or or whether it is specs higher by 3x or things like that but i think uh, 
you know, your engineering team, um, you know, has to, you know, effectively work with some of your technology partners to make sure that the best product comes out of for your customers. So Akash, I wanted to um, come back to the investment opportunity in robotics hardware in India. Do you think there is a strategic advantage that companies coming out of India have over global companies? I'm, I don't, I'm not sure about that. I think one strategic advantage is that if, you know, given that there is a fair amount of, uh, I would say, so, okay, let, let me answer this in two ways, right? Um, you know, one, if you are kind of building products for India ecosystem, right, then there is definitely fair amount of strategic advantages given that, you know, there, there are users, um, you know, there are, there are fair amount of users and things like that. Because the other side of the challenge is, are they able, are they ready to accept it and all? But I think, but kind of finding pilots and all is is not that hard if you're kind of building a more um, India-centric uh, robotics, uh, um, you know, product. From the hardware ecosystem, it's still pretty challenging, right? And and you know, um, I would say uh, we we still feel that you know hardware ecosystem and somebody some you know somewhere like Shenzhen uh, is uh, is like 20x more advanced than you know what you would you would find here, and and hence the rate at which you can evolve your product and uh, you know and do prototyping is much much faster, right? I think um, so. I think from the from the customer point of view, if you are building a more India centric uh, you know uh, robotics product, then I, I think there are people who are open to kind of try out the technology and do betas and things like that. But from the Development ecosystem, I think, um, you know, India is still not the best place to be for, for developing hardware. So the Make in India hasn't delivered yet in that sense? Yeah, I think Make in India is is going to take some time, right? It's 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 not a, you know, I, I won't say it's a magic wand, right? I think uh, it's going to take take some time and to set up that whole ecosystem and, and, and things like that. And also, see, there is a difference between manufacturing ecosystem and prototyping ecosystem, right? And Make in India is very focused towards manufacturing ecosystem, not necessarily prototyping ecosystems, right? So I think um, while today I feel a little more comfortable about manufacturing my bots in India, right, given the kind of, uh, you know, I would say vendors and all are that, that are coming through, but prototyping ecosystem is a very different ecosystem, right? You know, just to give an example, Will somebody take my two PCBs and kind of, uh, you know, just, um, you know, I, I would say bake them and kind of test them for me, right? It's it's going to be very hard for us to find such a vendor in India, right? You'll find vendors who will do this, but will take 15 days, 30 days, right? In Shenzhen, I get this done in like two days. You know, I'll, I'll literally, this guy, I'll, I'll tell him this is my circuit design, right? He's tell you, I'll give you a PCB in three days, right? He'll arrange for all the components. He'll, you know, manufacture the PCB. He'll solder it. He'll test it and give it to me, right? And and that's because there are so many people trying to prototype hardware and, and I, I'm, I'm sure we are all users of them um, in there. So I think prototyping ecosystem is a different ecosystem. Today, if I have to, if I don't have my own CNC machine and milling machine, and if I type, try and say, I want five mechanical pieces of this, right? It's very going to be very hard for people to take that business. They'll be saying that in um, because every for every five piece because those are custom pieces. You'll have a two-hour setup time and things like that. And then people will say, okay, I'm going to just take a you know um, a project which in which I just need to produce twenty thousand of one small thing and I'm okay, right? 
So I think prototyping ecosystem is a different ecosystem than a manufacturing ecosystem. While Make in India is really kind of uh, putting a lot of focus on manufacturing ecosystem, prototyping is still still different. 3D printing is not the answer for that. 3D printing is um, uh, is um, not necessarily the answer for load bearing components, right? When you when you when you got to kind of build something which is now metallic 3D printing is still not that mature. It's extremely extremely costly. Right, so for load bearing components, still the 3D printing is not the best um, best answer, and and especially for the things that are dynamic in nature, right? You know, you know things that are moving, things that, that are dynamic in nature, things on which surface, um, you know, material matters and things like that. So uh, it's still um, 3D printing isn't a solution. Well, Akash, we are aware of time. Just want to end on a personal question. So. Um, is there any firmly held belief that you held on to for the longest time that you have let go recently? Something that came and uh, convinced you otherwise? I would say as a and, and this is not from product perspective, but more from a you know organization perspective, entrepreneur perspective. And and this is not recent. I think this is what uh, is something that that kind of I started thinking more a year back or so. Uh, I would say as entrepreneurs and as kind of building businesses, um, you got to be a lot more um, accepting of changes, right? Um, you know, and, and, and things like that. I think, uh, you know, I always am a person who wants to make sure that the outcomes are perfect, right? And I think while it's very, very, very important that you put every second of yours to make sure that outcome is perfect, but not tying yourself or your energy to the outcome is very, very important. I think, um, you know, and, and you know, uh, at least I used to be extremely, extremely disappointed if the outcome, the perfect outcome that I was looking for isn't that perfect, right? And, and in an entrepreneurial journey, that's going to happen like enough number of times, right? So I think it's important to understand the importance of the of the journey and not tying yourself to the outcome of every, um, you know, every uh, thing that you're trying to achieve. I think, uh, you know, there are there are always going to be a multiple paths to reach the destination you want to reach, right? So, so I think um, not tying yourself very closely to the outcome or the perfection of the outcome that you're looking for, right? Um, you know, is I think um, I think important. Thanks from all of us uh, for taking the time. Really appreciate it. And uh, Akash, really informative. Thank you. Thanks. 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 Yeah. Enjoy the winters uh, in the north and have a good time while you're in India. Thanks. Thanks, Raul. Thanks. All the, all the best to you and Grey Orange. Take care. Yeah. Thanks. Glad this was helpful. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.